Today with us, we have Dr. Carolyn Fortuna, who is a digital media literacy scholar, climate change activist, and college professor. And they write for the online environmental site, Clean Technica, where they have written and published over 1,000 articles. And just so our listeners know, today is um, Wednesday, September 28th. Both Carolyn and Jackie are in Florida, trudging along with this podcast. Um, I can't believe it. (laughs) And uh, really being great, gracious with their time um, and We welcome you both to the show. Jackie is having some technical issues, so she'll be chatting us questions, and I'll be asking those questions on her behalf, by the way, in case our listeners um, wonder why I'm doing that. But welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thank you very much, Britt, and thank you, Jackie, for also, as Britt termed us, being a stormtrooper. This is an interesting time. Yeah, absolutely. You two really are. I'm not a Star Wars person. I think that's from Star Wars, but... In my mind, you are (laughs) stormtroopers. So the topic of today's discussion will be focused on the importance of offering up graphics, charts, images, and other media assets when pitching. Just so our listeners know, I pitched Carolyn a very data-heavy story that had a ton of amazing visualizations. And in the follow-up, I specified how Carolyn could actually embed any of the charts that they'd like to use if they planned on writing about it. And turns out, Carolyn had already started writing the story, and they said that the embeddable charts were a huge incentive to writing up the article. So I really wanted to have Carolyn on our show today to discuss why those were a huge incentive. I thought that'd be a really great topic to dive into because it's always something that people ask. Do we need to have charts to support the story? How important are visualizations? Should they be embeddable? And all that fun stuff. So Carolyn, why don't we start there? Can you elaborate a bit more on why the embeddable charts were an incentive to writing up the article? Sure, Brett. So I'd like to begin by talking about the importance of having well-cited sources. In this day and age, with our web 2.0 and now merging into 3.0, we have a lot of dialogue. But what we need to do is ground our writing in source work so that we have credibility. So it's really important for me as a writer for Clean Technica to be able to explain a topic well, and in doing so, to cite a source so that a reader who is interested in learning more can click through and go find that source. It could be uh, statistics. It could be a research report. It could be a scholar in the field. Regardless, it's important to be able to say that our work has a reference point. So your offer to use the embedded charts was really important. We live in a visual information era, and I write 1,000 word articles minimally. So people have a much more difficult time in this day and age to digest that information. Having a chart that is already created, that is appropriately designed to match the data is just fabulous. It alleviates my need to create such a chart and 
I am sure that the chart then matches the data. Of course, as Brett, you and I uh, connected, it's always important as well to correctly attribute that source. And so uh, Brett and I had a good back and forth to understand that I was intending to correctly cite the source, but that having it already constructed was really valuable to me to further emphasize to my, our audience the credibility of the work that I was writing about. I'm actually a little bit surprised by um, the emphasis on the sourcing and how it took a turn there. And um, it helps me also understand too what you're looking at as a journalist when it comes to the graphics that we supply and um, how we, at once we're working on our campaign and putting together the data, especially if it's a very data-heavy piece, how we need to make sure as the people putting together these campaigns um, that our sources are appropriately cited. And I believe the story that I had shared with you had a methodology methodology section at the bottom. Did you pay attention to that when you were, in, if you remember at all, I know you work and <laughs> produce a ton of stories a day, but I guess in general, do you, when you're pitched stories like this, do you immediately go to the methodology section or look for those sources that were used? I do look at the methodology section because I want to see who is producing the data, uh, how they are going about it, and whether they are being objective. Now, I write for a mass market, uh, mass audience with Clean Technica. So I am not looking for an academic audience. That being said, if I were, I would be looking for what they call a certain degree of N, which is the number of um, people surveyed, etc. We don't necessarily need that at Clean Technica, but I do want to make sure that the source is a valid source that can be researched additionally. And so methodology sections are really, really great. In fact, it could just be like a click through where want to learn more about our author and the uh, foundation of this report, click here. That might be plenty, but it does enhance the credibility. So yes, methodology is important. I love that you brought up this survey, uh, the amount of survey respondents, because the campaign that I pitched to you didn't have a survey component, but it's something that I produce a lot of, and it's always a question that we have is how many survey responses are appropriate? And this is the first time I think that Jacqueline and I have had an answer to where someone hasn't said we, I only work with or consider pitches that are survey-based data if they have at least a thousand survey mm -hmm. responses. So can you elaborate yeah, a bit that. more there? Absolutely. Sure. Yes. Now, of course, the audience for surveys makes a difference in the end result. So we have to be conscious that a certain researcher who's funded by a particular group may only have a particular kind of audience. So a thousand participants is not necessarily valid. There's also something called a content analysis. 
which you may be familiar with, which has no survey, but what it is, is a review of literature on the topic to gain a consensus. And that can be quite valuable. Not everything is survey based by participants, for sure, without going into a dissertation on how you do research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, getting in the weeds there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that helps clarify things in my mind. Um, that makes sense. Cool. Okay. Uh, cool. So I think moving kind of just a little bit more questions from me on the charts and graphics component, I believe you had used the embeddable um, codes to write about the piece and write about the survey. Or, I mean, not survey, sorry. Write about the um, data that we pitched to you. Um, did that make a difference or any type of images or graphics, even if they weren't embeddable, um, say they were just screenshots or um, PNGs that I sent along via email, are those still helpful and desirable? They absolutely are helpful and desirable. And I may be speaking particularly for the organization for which I write, but we have a WordPress template that we all write uh, from this this main place and our images must be resized so that they are 1200 times like 800 so they have to be wide oh, okay. otherwise they do not show up well and so for example, this morning I had a press agent that sent me something about EVs, the top, uh, uh, the, the ratio of EVs to chargers in each state across the U.S. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. And that was something that I was given permission to use. But when I tried to upload it, the resolution was terrible because it came in so small, I couldn't use it. So I would recommend having... Um, high resolution at a 1200 by 800 size, then we can reduce it as needed, but we need to have that as a minimal. So again, horizontal as opposed to vertical. I can't use verticals at all. That's a really good recommendation and uh, insight for anyone who's pitching Clean Technica in particular. Um, <laughs> that's I super helpful. we're kind of uh, average as well. So there's a lot of these... Um, online periodicals now that are using these kind of templates. Right. Jacqueline is asking about embeddables like Infogram. Did did you use Infogram? Mm. And this is in Slack, by the way. <laughs> uh, are they okay. helpful? Do, are you familiar with Infogram, Carolyn? I do not know Infogram. I know Canva very well, so I imagine it's comparable. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, again, the thing is that it's the content that takes priority. And so any embeddable charts or graphics are supporting. And so they can't take up a huge amount of the space of the entire article. Plus, you know, if we're being forthcoming, we have lots of advertisers that are plunking down their pitch in the middle of our 
um, stories, our articles. And so we have to remember that as we put in graphics or charts, they can't overwhelm the whole of the content. Got it. Let's move on to our next kind next question topic section. When it comes to pitches and stories, what exactly are you looking for? And that's very general, but it's meant to be general. <laughs> okay, good. And I am self-titled as a generalist, meaning I write about all different topics and I do not come to the clean energy world as an expert. I am a media literacy scholar and an educator and writer by trade. So what I do is take my research and writing background and apply it to the subject area. So for my periodical, we look for everything that is promoting the transition to a zero emissions world. There's a lot of stuff about EVs and solar and wind, but we're not exclusive to that. In fact, um, I have uh, carved out, to use a bad um, metaphor, a, a niche in finance about ESG, about plant-based um, food transitions, um, and about you know, nonprofit organizations around the world that are activists in promoting clean energy or uh, climate change activism. So it's a big topic with a lot of possibilities for you all who are looking to fit clients into um, these kind of narratives. That is a very big topic. I'd imagine you get a lot of pitches per day, but maybe I'm wrong. Can you kind of give us an idea of the average amount of pitches you receive in a day? I probably get two dozen pitches a day. That's a, that's a lot. That's a so good that, amount. Ask me how many I choose. <laughs> <laughs> that's an even better question. About one. Oh, if, okay. Because they are blatantly these... 23 that I do not choose. They're blatantly trying to get a client's name out there without paying for a sponsored post. They're not general mm -hmm. enough. So um, I am not certainly going to um, tell you all who are quite skilled in your field, but the pitches as you call them, that work best for me are those that fit the example of the client, which I kind of frame as a case study into a larger umbrella of what's going on in that particular issue topic. So for example, if I had a client who is a startup in a battery um, a, a battery manufacturing company, the pitch that would introduce it would have statistics about the transition to electric vehicles, the need for more battery R&D, the um, prevalence of companies out there and new technologies with regard to batteries, and then my client. So it, mm -hmm. uh, the, the funnel 
wide to small. Right. So it wouldn't be self-serving. It wouldn't, you know, go into details about the batteries that they create. It would be about a um, looking closer or deeper into a topic that is relevant to what the, what they do or what they sell. Exactly. And then certainly you would want to put in some descriptors of the client and how that client deserves recognition because they are exceptional in some way. Going back to all of the two dozen pitches that you receive, it sounds (laughs) like you open every one. That's more particular to me as the type of type A person that I am. (laughs) I just like to keep my email really clean at all times because there are so many important things that I need to attend to. So I do skim very quickly, get a sense of whether or not it might be valuable. I do a first skim. I go through all my email. I sometimes keep things live. And then later in the day, I'll go back through them. We also have a sheet where we sign up for stories so that we don't, the the writers do not uh, step on each other or duplicate really the same topic. And so if I see something that's interesting, I'll put that topic on the sheet and then the link to where I found it. Maybe a hint for you that works well for me is often these emails that I get with pitches just have contact this person with the email address, but it's so much more valuable if the whole email is able to be embedded as a link. So all of that information can be saved in one reference point, one link. Did I lose you? Did I lose you? Carolyn? Oh no. I think we might've lost them. This is what happens when we record in a hurricane. Jacqueline is saying, oh no. Oh, goodness. All right, listeners, we are back with Carolyn and Jackie, and they are literal stormtroopers who, as we (laughs) have found out, um, dealt with the storm uh, in the best way possible, joined the call just to have this interview, which was so interesting. But of course, lo and behold, the power went out and we had to take a break and return today to continue the discussion because, as I mentioned before, Carolyn was sharing such interesting things that we've not yet really heard about, such as how they handle their inbox and how the Clean Technica team keeps a spreadsheet where they'll drop topics from what it seems and for someone to consider in the future on the Clean Technica team to write about because they're simply interesting. Uh, Carolyn, I'd love to revisit that topic and learn more about how that works exactly, if you wanted to start back there. Sure, I'm happy to oblige. So we have a team of writers that vary from full-time, probably six to seven day a week correspondence, to people that might write one or two articles a week. Because we have a varying um, amount of interest on a daily basis, it's good for us all to be able to record what we're writing about so there's not overlap. Now, needless to say, everybody has a different perspective on a particular topic, so it's not imperative that we write about different topics, but it's nice to know that if it's something 
timely, for example, that we are not duplicating somebody else. So we have a collaborative Google Sheet that we keep every month. And if we see a topic, say, that's uh, trending in the news, that's of interest, we can claim that topic for ourselves. And what we do is put our name, um, some kind of title that is probably in flux about what we'll talk about and any links that we have found for that possible article. That information is as much for us as a writer as for a comparison sake for the other writers on the team. It allows us to see if somebody else has already done that article or it's in process or if we are the first one to really kind of put our claws into it. You mentioned too about the sources that might be helpful. Um, I'm wondering, or not sources, but links to additional resources that might mm -hmm. be helpful. I'm wondering, do you also list sources? So people who they might be able to reach out to if they wanted to get additional commentary, for example? Oh, sure. The difficulty with getting additional commentary is that it's uh, slow, for lack of a better word. I am, for example, right now, a clean technical reader has reached out to me to ask me to do this article. And of course, it's a compliment that, that this person would choose me of the writing team. So I had to live in the literature of this topic for a while, then send him follow-up questions, and now wait for him to get back with the questions and answers, and then build that into an article. It's a lot easier to have, say, um, written sources ready to go. So, for example, say somebody's an expert in solar. If, one, I either have some comments from them that I can build into articles as I need, or two, know that they have very quick turnaround, like they are 24-7, online, then they make a good source. Live sources, as you can tell, are more difficult than written sources. And I use Google Scholar all the time for my sources because those are white papers that have already been peered reviewed. And so the bulk of um, the credibility has already been established. Okay. That's very, very, very interesting and helpful because I'm wondering, and I don't know the process, right? But if you're using Google Scholar, um, and I had a client, for example, who was in the solar space, let's just use that, and you know had the time and the interest in writing a white paper, um, that could be the first kind of suggestion to give that client to give them a better chance at getting contacted for a story on the topic that someone such as yourself is writing. So I don't, Jackie, we haven't received that feedback yet or that tip, have we? No, and that's brilliant. I really, I really think that's helpful. Right? I didn't even think yeah. about that. And then um, another thing that stood out to, to me that, that you said, Carolyn, was just the response time, um, always reminding listeners to remember to provide commentary um, as quickly as possible. If a question has come through from a journalist, always super useful. But also, um, you mentioned how you'll reference commentary that they've provided previously. 
how do you keep track of that? Do you have another Google spreadsheet where you organize <laughs> that commentary? Um, it's more that I have um, personal files and I have um, people that I've worked with in the past that I know are not only reliable, but credible and uh, uh, understands my intentions as a general rule and are happy to fill in. For example, I won't name names, but I have somebody that's a battery innovator. And so I've met with that person when they were in town and uh, they send me things periodically. And if I say, yeah, I like what you send me, can you get the, the CEO to send me a quick exclusive quote? That makes all the difference. That you, um, the exclusive nature of it sets me apart as a writer. Otherwise, I am writing something that's hardly different than Bloomberg or the New York Times. And I don't even begin to compare myself to those two sources because that's a different level. I think a lot of PRs kind of overlook that um, the importance of having commentary be um, exclusive. And that word gets thrown around a lot. I think that's a good reminder. Exclusivity doesn't just mean the data you're providing, but also the words in which you're providing to, you know, give a little more in-depth commentary to the piece. So that's good. So, that's really Jackie, good. Jackie, you're absolutely right. When I did my doctoral work and was writing my dissertation, I'll always remember my major professor said to me, everybody can collect data. It's the interpretation of the data that we all struggle with, no matter where we are in our careers. And she was a very established wow. professor. And so when I, somebody sends me a chart, that's great. But if you can tell me what it means as well, oh, that makes my life so much more easy as a writer. And then I don't have to struggle with wondering if I have interpreted it correctly. I'm a word person. I'm not a numbers person. <laughs> and so I will be using the tools I bring. But if you tell me what it means as well, boy, is that slick. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And also, don't worry, we're not going to be talking numbers on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you Thank can, you. I just may ask questions of you. <laughs> All right. So what else? Where should we go from here? Have we asked you yet, Carolyn, how many emails you receive each day? It's always an interesting question in I my perspective. Actually, that's where we lost our connection last time with the storm pressing down. Uh, so I probably get, and please forgive me if I am repeating myself, We probably, I probably get two dozen emails a day. And I am both a close reader and a fast reader. So I will skim them, try to see if there is a thematic focus on which I can land. Unfortunately, most of those emails are, my company would like to talk to you about X and feel free to reach out. There's, there's little work that they have done for me to make it easy for me to try to include them. So I usually delete it. Yep, it's all ringing a bell now. Those are, that's um, definitely something we talked about, but it's good. It's a good reminder um, not to be self-serving. And if you can, it sounds like, at least as we were talking before we started recording, it sounds like it's always 
a good idea to th- um, send something that's timely, as long as it's relevant to what you write. Timely and thematic. But, and by that, I mean speaking to a big version of a subject yeah. rather than specifically trying to get free advertising for a company. It's, it, we do sponsored posts, and so often it, it just seems like a blatant pitch for free advertising. That's not really our mission. Our mission is to help people understand the transition to a sustainable, clean energy economy and world and life, not to pitch companies who are looking for a piece of that. And so it's, it's um, an amorphous middle place, but companies can participate with us if they mold it in a way that looks like it's serving the public, not their own self-interest. Yeah. I like that. I, some word that popped into my head, um, specificity, it's not enough to say we have an expert that can talk about X, Y, Z. What can you actually bring to the table about X, Y, Z that is unique and interesting and actually helpful for your audience? Otherwise it sounds like just a plea for you to reach out and do a story that you came up with on your own that you are trying to fit in their advertorial mission rather than the other way around, um, which is for them to provide uh, value to you and your readers. So that's cool. A a subset of that, if I may, Jackie, is that often um, a company or a press agent will contact us. If you would like to talk to X, feel free to contact them at this information. Those interviews are largely terrible. They're all, uh, and, you know, people don't really know how to speak in concise, synthesized ways to get the message out. So I have really stopped doing live interviews. I really don't have the time to edit them down. So what I do instead is now I send, if I find an interesting fit, I'll send five or six questions that are open-ended and then get the press agent to have the client fill them in or the press agent fills them in and then returns them to me. So then it's grammatically correct. It's the intent of the client and it meets the criteria, what I'm looking for. Oh, that's... I have questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have had a lot of folks say they don't send questions via email, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I'm thinking about Casey Bond in the the Haro episode. Um, She said she's ran ran into plagiarism and um, some lackluster answers from CEOs, uh, specifically just giving answers that look like they Googled them. And I'm wondering if you ever run into anything like that or if, People have been pretty good about giving you what you need in in email interviews. Well, you have to remember that I am designing the questions. I I am not designing a question that is going to ask the client to be doing the research for me. So I've probably Ah. already been out there doing that research. What I want is their comment about that aspect of the research. So 
um, I don't know, solid state batteries, you, you know, how can your data support the position that solid state batteries are ultimately safer and more reliable than lithium? Because I have done that background research and I want to fit it in. It's not like, tell me what a lithium ion battery is. That, that would be such a waste of everyone's time. Yes. <laughs> that makes sense. That's a really good differentiator between the yeah. two situations. Just a quick pivot. I mean, it's very relevant, um, but when it comes to follow-ups, how do you feel about those, Carolyn? Could you define what you mean by that, please? Of course. Um, so when you haven't got, when you haven't, you know, returned an email um, and somebody follows up and says, in case something along the lines of, hi, uh, bumping my previous message, something probably super annoying like that. <laughs> How do you feel about follow-ups? Like, do you, do you like, do you like that? Some journalists have said it's helpful as long as they phrase it the right way, of course, because they might've missed a really good story um, if they hadn't have followed up. So there are pros and cons and we're always just curious to hear how someone feels about them. Um, I have a ver- uh, several feelings about these. One of which is <laughs> sometimes it's just a waste of my time. It's another email to delete. If I saw it the first time and deleted it, generally I delete it again the second time. Right. Sometimes the press agent has reframed that information in a way that's connected to a trending topic, adds details or depth that wasn't previously evident, that might catch my interest. But just mm. uh, just in case you missed it, here it goes again. I just delete those. Mm-hmm. Right. So following up in a way that adds value yeah. and perhaps points you in the direction of an angle that wasn't previously mentioned, um, could be more timely. That's really helpful. That's yes. great. That would be a big difference. Shall we move on to the shout out component and wrap it up? It sounds fine. So um, thank you for giving me a heads up prior to our podcast so I could think about who would make an exemplary person that I have worked with out there in the press world. And I would have to shout out to Diana Rosetto of Thatcher and Company out of New York. I've worked with Diana for several years now, and she wasn't always with Thatcher. But what she has done is given me the opportunity to review either books or white papers ahead of time, helped me to fit them into um, the type of writing and research that I do, and also is quite open without getting personally affronted if it's just not something that I want to do. Or if I get, say, a sample product to try and I find it's not what it says and I tell her that, she doesn't get offended. She's not going to take it personally and cross me off her list. She takes it in the way that I mean it, that this is not probably something we really want to publish right now. Perhaps you could tell the client our concerns and that it probably should 
go back to R&D, something like that. So she fits it to my editorial requests. She's not somebody that's defensive. And she offers me some, often some preliminary pre opportunities that aren't open to all press. Ooh, does she phrase it as a pre-opportunity? I've well, not heard of that. It's kind of like before. to preview something before it goes live. Sure. Nice. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. And and sometimes it is um, protected and you know, we can't publish. I'm sure you're familiar with this until a certain day and time, but I can get a preview of it and and a lot of times being able to try something, a product or a service, you know, they're going to send me an e-bike and I'm going to ride it around my neighborhood for three days and then they come get it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. It, it like gives, me a, chance, it gives me a chance to make it personal rather than abstract. And I think the readers like that. They like to say, yeah, I couldn't figure out how to turn it on. <laughs> you know, I mean, it makes it real <laughs> for them too. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so those are the kinds of things that appeal to me personally. Can I give one thought about that really quick? Of course. Um, I like that you mentioned that you can be real with her and you don't always um, maybe accept her story ideas and that she takes it with stride and is very <clears throat> productive about it. It makes me think that it would be a good opportunity to remind the listeners that when you hear the shout out component, it's not always like rainbows and butterflies. Um, There are a lot of really amazingly skilled PRs that on a daily basis get rejection. So this is just a kind reminder that just because they said no today doesn't mean that they won't say yes or remember you tomorrow. So keep up the good attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if you have a writer that you like their work, read that writer as a, as a general rule, you know, you can go to muck rack and type that in and you see your favorite writer and every article, they just, an algorithm (laughs) compiles that and you could keep, keep track of what your favorite writer is writing about and then fit something into that. And you're more likely to get the writer to nibble. That's a wonderful way to end it. My goodness. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This was fantastic. And I really appreciate you coming to the table with countless tips and um, also for sticking it out once again, previously through that treacherous storm. Well, it was delightful to chat with you both, Brett and Jackie. And I hope that we have created a better understanding of both sides of this world of the writer and the client and hopefully we're all better off for it oh thank you 